You may go ahead and have a seat for those of you in the room. Hopefully, uh, those of you who are online, you stood a little bit and sang with us. I can't tell, so tell the truth. Uh, If you were, let us know in the chat, because that's what we're talking about today as we make our way through the 10. Good morning. My name is Kyle. If we haven't met yet, I'm the lead pastor here at Generations, and I just want to make sure that those of you who are here know that you are loved and valued, and we look forward to continuing to get to know you and your story. And for those of you online who are watching, we know that you'll watch something online before you maybe ever set foot in person, so we hope we build enough trust with you uh, to just hear your story and would be honored to do that. This morning, as we continue our series, The Ten, I just want to read from Deuteronomy chapter 5. The scriptures uh, were often oral and and meant to be read aloud and heard, and so some of you who like to follow along, definitely uh, encourage you, you can do that, Uh, but I just want you to listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, 20 verses here, so... Just listen and soak this in. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am proclaiming to you as you hear them today. Learn and follow them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire on the mountain. At the time I was standing between the Lord and you to report the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien who lives within your city gates so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and so that you may prosper in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give dishonest testimony against your neighbor. Let's pray. God, speak to us as you have been before and promise to again. 
Help us to hear your word. Help us to be in tune with your presence. For those who are hurting this morning, help them feel your love. For those who are hopeful this morning, help them to cling to you. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our TV appetites for legal drama run bottomless. Whether it's the classic Boston legal, law and order, uh, lie to me, uh, yeah, yeah, Bull is one of my favorites, uh, it's, it's, that's a good one, uh, or maybe you're a fan of the daytime drama, Judge Judy, I mean, we, we've, all right, we're, we're used to that kind of legal drama. In theory, due, these, due to these shows, we, we've grown familiar with the term, like, testimony, or witness, especially in terms of a legal setting, we, we understand that. Now, I'm going to ask you to be a little bit courageous here. Uh, by show of hands, if you are so willing, who has ever been in an actual courtroom? I know I have. Jury duty, plaintiff, defendant, uh, one too many speeding tickets. Uh, found out in my own experience on a few of those. Um, you know, what's interesting is you watch some of those legal shows, and, you, and then you get into that experience, and you wonder how much is a- accurate. And one of the things that seems to be pretty consistent is the phrase, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And it tends to increase its seriousness when you go from that legal, you know, trying to manipulate a jury or who's telling the truth or the banter of the lawyers to actually being in the setting and you see people and you hear people and the weight of the person who sticks their hand out on that Bible and says, so help me God tell the truth. There's a different kind of weight that transfers from something at a distance and visual to something personal. You may have even heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me until they do. They hurt one's reputation, hurt one's heart. Or even re-trigger pictures of painful scenarios, which bring a rise in identity issues, threaten security, and even one's place in relational connection. Where, where am I standing in relationship to others? Am I significant? Or am I an enemy? Or are others an enemy? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we know they do. In a world that says both share your truth no matter what and facts don't care about your feelings, seeking to be generously just with your words and perspective is as challenging as ever.
for both of those statements. Share your truth and facts don't care about your feelings. Those extremes color our perspective on truth, on how we should interact with others. Now, as we fight for truth, both of these statements make sense when they're divorced, honestly, from deep relational connection. You can logically get there and defend them until they start to be shared and said at the cost of another individual. And every fight, there are a series of three truths, I think, that or perspectives that, that kind of help us navigate this together. And as we think about those statements and as we think about truth and these spheres of life by which truth comes and by the which we are able to share our perspective and by the, which, by the way which we, our truth is accurate, it doesn't, as, as I think of those statements, I, I don't, I don't want to minimize your perspective. I don't, I don't want to minimize your experience or what you've been through. But as, as we think about navigating life in our world, we begin to start to understand that none of us is totally as objective as we would like to be. And sometimes our words are sticks and stones. So any set of facts can be interpreted in a myriad of ways, as well as your perspective can become a weapon. For this reason, the ninth commandment profoundly shapes God's covenant people. To start to engage in relationships in such a way that it's not colored by their truth or facts divorced from feelings or context or scenario, but out of the relational rescue that they have experienced, they can bring witness and testimony for the care and the calling of God. See, on the precipice of the promised land, there was going to be many perspectives chirping in their ears. As these people begin to live and grow and flourish, they would hear the perspectives of other nations, sometimes of their own people, about how that should shape or how they should live or what they should do. And ultimately, how the Israelites carried themselves in relationship to truth and then carried that truth would communicate something about the God who'd rescue them. See, it's easy to get lured into a conversation about the philosophy of truth, which I am very tempted to do on the macro. I, I can get very high level. I'm happy to discuss, is all truth relative or is there an absolute truth? I, I, I enjoy those discussions. But this commandment narrows the scope of truth to specifically the verbal witness and the word and the action we use in relationship to another person. Do not give dishonest testimony 
against your neighbor. Notice the object of that you should not give this dishonest testimony. Or some of us know if we just can repeat the Ten Commandments, maybe bear false witness. The object is your neighbor. Neighbor is a term in the Bible used to describe someone outside yourself. So there are three realms where truth must be sought so as to bring about human flourishing. Truth today coincides with integrity and personal relationships and their outcome. So the first sphere where truth begins to navigate is the public sphere. See, Israel was responsible for mediating justice in relationship to God so as to represent his character to the nations. So in that courtroom setting, lying in court when issues arose, when when people were trying to live out justice, determine right and wrong in a practical sense within a covenant community, lying was a serious issue because what it was going to do, it was going to violate and break down justice. And the breakdown of justice in that moment began to communicate something about God. So so God's people were to be pretty ruthless and relentless about validity of testimony, of truth, of when people get together in civil or criminal cases, that what was shared was accurate, was trustworthy, and there was several witnesses to be present. The integrity of the community was serious business. See, if people were to trust God and his promises, then they were to be his people, then the people who were attached to God needed to be filled with integrity too. So when they were called to court, when they were called to account to say what is true and what is not, their testimony in the public sphere was supposed to be accurate and true so as to point back to the faithfulness and trustworthy of God. Because a false witness undermined a covenant community built on God's faithfulness and trust. And a dishonest testimony robs such community of justice, declaring the guilty innocent and the innocent guilty. So for this covenant community, this, this was a command that shaped their interactions in a public sense when disputes arose in civil and criminal cases. And so, too, that has its effect on us today. But the next sphere of life, that truth begins to permeate, of of giving accurate testimony, is the personal sphere. It's our everyday conversation with people. This could include sharing stories, a conversation or story about someone good or bad. And in this conversation, what this commandment begins to press on us is to be accurate, to tell the truth without extra. See, we've all slid that extra adjective or adverb into a sentence to exaggerate, to feel better about ourselves, to prove a point. It's all to jockey for position to make sure that what is said puts me maybe in the right and the other person in the wrong, failing to account for what maybe needs to actually be said. 
And just because it can be said doesn't mean it should. So what this commandment begins to impress upon us is to be accurate without the extra. Or maybe even admit, omit something altogether, which might undermine our own point or may paint someone in a different light. Or maybe in these everyday conversations, as you think about the personal sphere, where this commandment begins to lead us, is maybe you've presumed someone's intentions without conversation. And as you tell that story, or retell that story, without a certain conversation, you're presuming or sharing that without seeking to converse about it with that person. And there are two consequences here. When we think about relationships and begin to truth tell, in relationships with others. When we lie on someone else or gossip or slander on others, it robs them of their reputation. So this means that we should not lie about other people or tell tales we know to be untrue, but it also means we should be careful not to spread false reports, even if we honestly thought they were true. See, it's a terrible thing to ruin someone's reputation Even doing so by honest mistake may make us feel better about ourselves, but it does nothing to help the rest of the world or maybe your community or the people you're sharing the story with feel better about the person they now despise because of your statement or story. It undermines someone's reputation, and we all know to build healthy relationships And even to build a reputation, it takes time and trust. And one extra word, one exaggeration, or one omitted fact may begin to undermine that reputation. Two, it undermines also our own integrity as people to be believed. If we find ourselves exaggerating commonly just adding something here or there or commonly omitting something or withholding or even sharing things that just don't quite need to be said. And sometimes we do that because we don't like the weight that what we heard or what we know places upon us. So so we just want to transfer that weight to someone else. Let them deal with it. Cool, I got it off my chest. I'm good. But, But we do that as a way to absolve ourselves and feel better about ourselves, not totally realizing or understanding what we've done is we've we've given something extra that may be unnecessary. And what happens is it begins to undermine our own credibility and integrity as people to be believed. Now, we have a message as the church that is the most powerful message that people are loved, that Jesus gave up his life for them, that he rose from the dead and they can have a relationship with God. So how we talk about other things, other people in conversations begin to color our words and our perspective and our character of how other people might view us. Well, if they exaggerate there, might they exaggerate in their faith? See, 
giving extra or omitting or lying, gossip, slander, however you want to think about accurately communicating the truth without being truthful, it begins to undermine our own integrity as a people to believe. Even secular fables like the boy who cried wolf reinforce the eroding nature of our integrity when we perpetuate falsehood. The last sphere that truth begins to engage and challenge us in and maybe even transform is the private sphere. So public, civil relationship with others, personal relationships between each other, but then private, or what's in your mind. This is your inner self-talk about others. Past experiences shape present inner conversations. When you see that person, what is the story you tell? Is it an accurate story? Maybe. But maybe not as well. When you engage with someone or you think about an experience or an opportunity, have you already self-talked your way into what you think the outcome should be rather than be present in the moment and be able to hear and respond to the Spirit in those moments? We can err on being overly positive and overly cynical. And maybe without conversation, as we often do, we import the intentions of the other person into those conversations, those moments. And what happens is we got to start taking those thoughts captive. We've got to pay attention to what's going on in our mind, in our inner self-talk. When we engage with others, there, there's, there's two points I just make on this. When you prepare to engage with others or you receive some form of communication and you're unsure how to interpret it, the first is believe the best because that means you're practicing grace in the midst of that. Before you go into that, believe the best. The second, when you are able to talk, have a curious mindset. Have a curious mindset because sometimes we fill in the blanks with our own answers. When we have a curious mindset, we allow the other person to finish those statements, to answer those questions. And we might learn something. And it might even be radically different than what we've already made up in our mind about them. So the ninth commandment forbids us from lying, but it does far more than that. It moves us to seek out truth. So in an age of skimming, in an age where we are drowning in a glut of information, it demands that we pursue the whole truth rather than risk promoting a lie. It demands that we resist the lazy temptation to have our views shaped by scrolling and skimming and surface. It demands that we start moving towards conversations, moving towards people as God has moved towards us. The passage that comes to mind as I think about this is Hebrews chapter 6. 
And these three, as we think about these spheres of life, I think the author of Hebrews builds to this point. It says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. God made a promise to Abraham, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and for them by a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. God is truthful. He cannot lie. He keeps his promises. His word is consistent and accurate and true. And if we are to be people who are moored by that reality, then we must not just simply aspire to that. We must, we must be anchored by that ourselves. See, having security in a drifting world doesn't come from managing your reputation or managing the facts or making sure your truth gets out there. Security comes from being attached to Christ, which serves as an anchor for your soul. It's Christ that serves as an anchor for our soul. So just as we have these three spheres, we must seek truth to be tethered to Christ. But just as I kind of mentioned those three spheres and those truths, we also have three enemies that want to undermine that reality, to pull up anchor and catch you adrift at sea. The devil screams out, God is evil, I hate him. And I will do everything to oppose him and destroy what he has made. The world screams out, the world is best without God and you are best when it's all about you. And the flesh screams out, I don't need God because I am God and it's all about me and it's dependent upon me. And so what are we to do in this battle? The Bible tells us to take our thoughts captive and examine them. To bring them into submission and consider the fruit and fight with gospel truths. See, as we begin to engage in the public realm, as we think about our interpersonal relationships, and even as we think about what's going on in our mind, the way we fight is not the way the world fights. The way we fight is with the truth about Jesus and allow that to shape our response and reaction and what is said and what is shared and what story we push forward. And give you some mind realities. We, we know that we need our heart to be transformed, but sometimes we need truths to start in our mind so that they can then seep into our soul. So now when you're in these tense situations, what I say may not affect you, 
directly or profoundly, but what it begins to do is you begin to repeat a series of truths that maybe they sink into your heart, that you make agreement with these realities and break the agreements, break the lies that have ensnared your mind and your heart. See, the enemy of our souls brings to our minds thoughts and words and lies about God while also accusing us, tempting us, and dividing and isolating us. Some of the lies that you may hear are, God doesn't really love you. He's out to get you and destroy your life. God has left you, you're all alone, and he doesn't care. You're not that important to him. Besides, even if he did love you, he couldn't help you. He's not that powerful. He can't be everywhere, you know. And even if he could, the stuff you're dealing with doesn't matter to him. Those are lies. The world gladly accepts these lies and passes them on. And since we grew up in a broken world, we all buy into many lies and rehearse them in our minds. That's why the Ten Commandments doesn't start with, are you prepared to hit this standard? It starts with the story of God's rescue and what he did because he does have the power. He does intervene and he can. And if we don't remember that story, of course we're going to propagate false truths. We have to go back to the story. That's why, again, we take communion every week to remember that story. We need that story because it's that story that begins to shape and color our minds and root out the sin. Because Satan won't give up. The world won't give up. Your flesh will scream at you. You really blew it this time. You should be ashamed of yourself. It shouldn't surprise you. However, because you always do stuff like that. Here you go again. You're such a loser. How many more times do you have to fail to realize it? You're never going to amount to much to anything. It's all because you're a filthy sinner. It's what you do. You're no saint. That's for sure. Cancel those agreements. That is not true. That is the story that sometimes we believe. But if we go back to the story of the cross, looking forward, looking back to God's rescue for Israel and forward to the cross, it's Jesus and what he did that extends forgiveness. Amen. He breaks the chains of sin Amen. and shame. He takes your guilt and declares you innocent. He takes your shame and makes you honorable. He takes the fear that the world wants to lay on you and gives you power Amen. to say no. Amen. And that is what we need. Amen. It's the power of Christ. It's the truth of Jesus and what he has done that changes us. For the world and for Satan doesn't want us to live boldly for Jesus, so he accuses us of things that are not true so that we will cower in fear, fear guilt, and shame. And we must be people who begin to bridge the gap so that when we live, when we exist in relationships, we are not spewing the same guilt, shame, and fear that the world does, but be transformed by the love of Jesus and the power of the Christ and begin to, to tell a different story. Because we know as we engage, we will be tempted with promises of fulfillment through sinful pleasures and pursuits. We're, try, we're convinced that God's ways are not good. And he loves, Satan does, to offer seductive shortcuts to fulfill our longings and desires. 
making sin attractive, to lure our hearts away from obeying God. See, it's the story that begins to root out the sin, the truth about God that begins to shape our reality. That's not why we take the Ten Commandments or even our value story over sin, as you've probably heard me already allude to. It's not stop sinning and start living by the story. It's start embracing the story, and that will overcome and overwhelm the sin in your life. And when you start living that story, it will have a powerful effect on the stories and perspectives of those around you. Because you won't feel tempted to fill your life up with other things, like images that make you feel powerful or desired or aroused, or to go ahead and take one more drink because it'll make your troubles go away. God knows this is enjoyable. He doesn't, it's like, it's like, believing the lie that God just doesn't want you to have any fun, uh, that you deserve better, that you've worked so hard, what's long with the little reward? You know you need that. Those are lies. And if you get this reward, then everything will change you. We believe those truths so our actions flow out of our agreements there. We've got to begin to cancel those agreements and allow the power of Christ to transform. The temptations definitely come in all forms. But every one of them is an empty promise leading to an unfulfilled longing. There are no shortcuts to deep fulfillment and satisfaction outside of God and his ways. Some of you right now are probably like, Kyle, that's, that's some of my inner monologue. Those are the thoughts that I've had or... Maybe you're not even aware that those are some of the thoughts that you've had. And my plea to you today is to be a witness in the world that doesn't witness to the lies of the enemy, but be a witness to the truth and the power of Christ. And when you begin to do that, that will shape and transform your life. So the enemy loves to divide and isolate through gossip and slander and bitterness. We've got to cancel that. We've got to resist that. So to resist that, we need some truths to combat that. To stop the erosion of relationships with each other. To give us reasons to separate or divide. To isolate. Because the enemy wants to pick us off one by one. So to fight for truth means that we start to put people over problems, and it means we put the person of Christ at the center of our life. And we repeat certain truths. Let me just give you a few that I've shared before in maybe a different way, but I have to rehearse to myself daily as I even just prepare to go to work. That it's God that's perfect, and Jesus lived perfectly for me. He is my righteousness story over sin. God loves me and Jesus died for my sins. I am loved and forgiven. God is powerful and mighty. Jesus rose from the dead. I am more than a conqueror in him. God is alive and present and with me. He sent his spirit to be with me and in me. I am not alone and without the power to overcome. And God is for me, not against me. These are just a sampling of truths 
that I've had to write down over the years to help seal the story in my own soul. And so maybe you jotted a few of those down. Maybe, maybe it's leveraging our values to begin to put into practice what is true throughout the week. But my hope is not that we just try not to lie, try to say truthful things, like not post fake news on Facebook, <laughs> but to be people who seek truth, who seek Jesus and witness not to a lesser story, but to the most powerful story of all. So these truths lived out in community begin to enable us to seek truth, be curious, and believe the best. And above all, it means that we start to live out generous justice. Where what is true is what is proclaimed, but we do it with the spirit of the grace that we have first received because of Jesus. It was dishonest testimony that was one of the sins used to send Jesus to the cross on our behalf. And when we begin to realize that, well, our sticks and stones may break our bones and that words do hurt us, the power of Christ can heal. The power of Christ can rebuild. And it starts with canceling the agreements, agreeing with the truth. And as you engage in relationship, seek that truth, be curious, and believe the best. Let us pray. God, you are good, and I just pray we be people who live by the more powerful and true story. Give us wisdom in our speech. Heal us, Lord. Give us the capacity to live well and witness, not to what we think is right, but to you, to you who is right, who is goodness. It's by Jesus' power and name that I pray. Amen.